The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. False confessions. Do innocent people really confess to crimes they didn't commit? Why in the world would someone do that? Would you? I have three guests with me today who have expertise in this unusual kind of event. One has even authored many articles in a book on examining the practice and structure of police interrogation. Dr. Richard Leo is the author of the multiple award-winning Police Interrogation and American Justice. Good morning, Dr. Leo. Good morning. With Dr. Leo, I have attorney Patrick McGinnis. His Jacksonville, Florida firm is Spinell McGinnis and Nasami. Although Pat has represented many high-profile cases in over 30 years, the most famous is probably the case involving a young man named Brenton Butler, a 15-year-old who, was ac- who actually did confess to a murder he didn't do. This case was the subject of an Oscar award-winning documentary, Murder on a Sunday Morning. Hello, Pat. Good morning. And then my third guest is private investigator Brian McGinnis of the Miami-based McGinnis & Associates. Brian has also worked many high-profile criminal cases uh, criminal defense cases. He's long been an advocate for issues concerning private investigators and is a past president of the Florida Association of Licensed Investigators, a former president of the National Council of Investigative and Security Services, and has testified before both a congressional subcommittee and a federal judicial panel. Good morning, Brian. Good morning. Glad to be here. Thank you for being here, all three of you. I'm going first to Dr. Leo. Dr. Leo, please tell us what it is that makes someone confess to a crime they didn't do. Well, we first have to realize that when somebody ends up confessing to a crime they didn't do, it's the end product usually of a very long interrogation. Um, And so it's not just that somebody calls a police station, I mean, calls calls into a police station or confesses out of thin air. They've usually been made to confess. Um, And so the question becomes, well, how did the process uh, of police interrogation uh, make somebody falsely confess or lead somebody to falsely confess. And usually what happens is it's a high-profile or serious crime. Most of the false confessions are in murder or rape cases, and um, at least the ones that have been documented and, and studied. Um, and um, the police mistakenly fix in on somebody who um, they think committed the crime but didn't commit the crime. So they misclassify somebody who is really innocent as guilty. Now, you have to understand something about police training. They are trained only to interrogate people who they believe committed a crime, not people who are innocent and not people who they're investigating. So when they interrogate somebody, it's only after they've come to that conclusion. The person's guilty, and the goal becomes to get a confession. 
And so a suspect, if they're innocent, and interrogation is not designed for the innocent, it's designed for the guilty, but police, like everyone, make mistakes. The suspect keeps saying, I didn't do it, I didn't do it, but the interrogator's not interested in hearing that at that point because they've already determined the person is guilty. Anyway, the techniques of interrogation, when applied to an innocent person, can lead to false confessions. We've, 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 the several hundred have been documented in recent years, and everyone believes this is the tip of the iceberg because police interrogation techniques, the methods, the psychological methods of interrogation are sometimes coercive. Police sometimes lie to suspects about evidence that doesn't exist. Um, they uh, sometimes a promise or suggest leniency in exchange for confessing. They often threaten implicitly, if not explicitly, um, greater harm or higher charges or more punishment if somebody doesn't confess in the cases that lead to false confessions. There's a psychological process, and we can talk more about it. There's a psychological process that can break down an innocent person through these kinds of techniques, usually after many hours, and lead them to falsely confess. There's no question it occurs. Many documented cases, most people are very skeptical. People think, I would not falsely confess. doesn't matter what you did to me, I would not falsely confess. Mm -hmm. But most people don't know what it's like to be in an interrogation room for hours or that police are trained in these very manipulative, deceptive, and sometimes psychologically coercive techniques. I see. And, and the police are, are trained to do this exactly the way you say. Is that correct? Well, the, the police are trained... Um, there are flaws in police training. They're trained. They can tell whether someone is lying or telling the truth generally through reading their body language. The, the scientific psychological research shows that police, um, like everybody else for the most part, are no better than chance. But police think they have this ability, and they're trained to believe they have this ability to tell whether or not somebody is lying or telling the truth by their body language. And they're trained, once they make that judgment, or, uh, or a different judgment, a judgment based on different reasons that somebody's guilty, just to launch into these kinds of interrogation techniques. But they are not trained to get false confessions. They're trained to get true confessions from guilty suspects, but they make mistakes, and their, their training is often very poor. Well, it seems to me that the, the uh, key is somewhat that a police officer really believes that this person is guilty, even though the, the person may be innocent. But in, in their process, in the police process, because of the way they do things, they really believe in that they have identified the guilty person. They're going to make sure they get a confession from them. Well, I, I think this is hugely important. Um, it, in, in my book, I talk about three errors that police make when we, get, when we get a false confession that leads to a wrongful conviction. And the first error is, is what we're talking about here, which I call the misclassification error. And it's, it's the one that people in the criminal justice system pay the least attention to, but it's the one that's the most consequential because it's earliest in the process. So if the police mistakenly misclassify somebody who is, in fact, innocent as guilty, um, that, that error is what, is what then leads the innocent person into the interrogation, which is guilt-presumptive, by which I mean, um, as I was describing earlier, based on a presumption of guilt. Once you land in an interrogation room, the goal of the police officer, the police interrogator, is to get a confession. It's not to get the truth, because they've already got the truth in their mind. You're guilty, you did it, now they've got to get you to say it. And if they're wrong and you didn't do it, you can deny a hundred times. It's not going to change their mind. They're, they're trying to get the confession. So I, I agree with you completely this is the most important error in the, in the sequence, and we can talk about the others, but this is crucial, and there needs to be better checks 
on this judgment, that would, that would go a long way towards solving this problem. And what do you suggest that saw, would solve the problem? Well, the, the other two errors I, I call uh, the coercion error, which has to do with the techniques police use, and then the contamination error, which sometimes involves, which involves sometimes, in some cases the feeding of facts. But, um, but, but in terms of what would, what would be um, the best way to solve the problem of false confessions when it occurs, and, you know, the listeners need to know, it's, it's not that, it, we don't know how often false confessions occur, um, but these are like airplane crashes and train wrecks. Even if these are low-probability events, these ruin people's lives and lead to multimillion-dollar judgments when, the, when their innocence is proven many years later and they sue the system. You know, we have to, we have to over-engineer the system to protect this kind of error from occurring. It's the worst kind of error in the system, just like we over-engineer airplanes to prevent crashes. Um, but it, it, the, the most important reform, without question, um, is the electronic, the mandatory electronic recording of interrogations from start to finish, it can be done surreptitiously without the suspect's consent, voice activated, digital, inexpensive. There are no excuses. Um, all interrogations should be electronically recorded from start to finish. That is the single biggest reform. And the other would be real. I mean, there are a number of others. And I know you have other guests on the program. Um, we, we can talk more about the others, but better police training, higher standards um, for getting somebody in the interrogation room, corroboration requirements. You know, there's a list of others, but recording is the most important. Well, one of the things you mentioned, Dr. Leo, is that um, uh, often the person, the suspect, is lied to by, the, by law enforcement. And it's my understanding that law enforcement has the uh, right and the, um, the sanction, really, to lie to get a confession. Yeah, well, it's, it's, I, I think you're right, but I, th- I want to put it in a little bit more context. Lying typically refers to lying about evidence. Telling a suspect, we've got your fingerprints, we've got you on videotape, we've got DNA. This technique works really well because police don't know, uh, suspects rather, don't know you can lie. I mean, for parents out there, think, you, know, you lie to your kids about having evidence, you get them to confess too. This is a very powerful technique. The problem is it works not just on the guilty, sometimes it contributes to what leads an innocent person to falsely confess. It's a very controversial issue because police believe the, means at the ends outweigh the means, uh, rational, justify the means, that you shouldn't get an innocent person to falsely confess, and some, but sometimes you do, and this is part of that process. But it's also important to make this point because police feel blamed, and I think um, you know a lot of this comes from the courts. The Supreme Court in 1969, Thurgood Marshall authored an opinion saying police can lie about evidence; it doesn't violate due process. The, the cops are just responding to what the Supreme Court has given them. Um, lying occurs in police interrogation rooms. Um, not just because police do it, but because the appellate courts, starting at the top from the U.S. Supreme Court, have allowed it. I see. Interesting. Are, well, are there different kinds of confessions? Well, we, we talk about false confessions. Um, we talk about three different types. We talk about um, one type, which is the type that perhaps is more, most common in the popular imagination, the voluntary false confession, where somebody calls in, and confesses to a high-profile crime. Now, this happened in the John Bonet Ramsey case a few years ago. The guy was a kook, and it was quickly disproven, uh, and, and it was probably for psychiatric reasons. The, kinds of, the, the other two kinds of false confessions are the kinds that I study and most researchers study. They are the product purely of police interrogation. One is called compliant, where somebody falsely confesses knowingly to get out of the interrogation room, just to put an end 
to a long, coercive, distressing interrogation um, just to get the cops to shut up or because the person is scared or they just can't take the pressure or they've been promised some kind of deal or threatened some kind of harm if they don't, um, if they don't confess. That's the compliant false confession. In the old days, used to do that with the third degree, beating somebody or hanging them out a window or using the rubber hose. These days, the compliant false confessions are are usually, usually, but not always, the product of psychological coercion. The other kind of false confession, which is far more counterintuitive and less common, is, is sometimes called a persuaded or an internalized false confession, where a person comes to believe they com- it's more likely than not that they committed the crime because the interrogator has crashed the suspect's confidence in their memory and led them to think that they committed a crime likely in a blackout or amnesic state, um, and that is a more complicated psychological process that we can talk more about if you like. Highly counterintuitive um, and, and less frequent, but far more damaging if it occurs because it's so counterintuitive that most juries will convict when you get one of these persuaded or internalized false confessions. I can imagine that if you were sitting on a jury and you heard that uh, the person that's on trial confessed to the crime, I'm, it's pretty conclusive that you would vote for guilt. I think most people think that way, and, and um, in jury surveys, um, that comes out. That the, 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 and it, it really makes an important, it makes a number of important points, that um, if, if a defendant has falsely confessed and their case goes to trial, they uh, almost always get convicted. Um, and number, so number two, um, from, from a system perspective, we really need to filter these confession, false confessions out earlier in the system, because if they make it past police and past prosecutors and past judges, in the pretrial and investigative processes, um, and they get to a jury trial, the person is likely going to get convicted. And, you know, I know some people in your audience are private investigators. These cases demand the highest level of investigation, um, and, and some people out there are defense attorneys. These cases demand, demand excellent, um, excellent defense work, um, as one of your guests has done in the celebrated case that you mentioned. I can't wait to hear more. We'll, ri- we'll be right back after a break. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on PI's Declassified. 
If you hear a dog barking or an angel singing, then you know that you are listening to Waking Up in America. Heard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific Time, Valerie Kirkard and all of her friends will bring you powerful and humorous discussions that raise thoughts and give you insight on how to live your life to its fullest potential. Adventure is always a must on Waking Up in America with Valerie Kirkard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific. Do you need directions to solid financial future? If so, the Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with a roadmap to making smart money decisions in every area of your personal finances. Join Jordan every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 3 p.m. Eastern for the Money Answers Show on the Voice America Business Channel. Learn how and where to get the best deals on mortgages, cars, and insurance. Find out the best ways to save for college and retirement. Get out of debt, improve your credit rating, and save on your taxes. The Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with great tips on investment opportunities in real estate, stocks, annuities, and other investment vehicles. That's the Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman on the Voice America Business Channel every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. We're talking about false confessions with expert Dr. Richard Leo. What is it like to be falsely accused? And what would you do if you were the suspect? 15-year-old Jacksonville, Florida, Brenton Butler knows Brenton. Uh, he knows. Brenton was arrested for murder and confessed to the crime. His attorney, um, Pat McGinnis from Florida, and his brother, his twin brother, actually, a private investigator from Miami, Florida, are both here to talk about their experience working with Brenton and other innocent individuals. Pat, tell us about Brenton's case. Brenton was a young 15-year-old black man um, who on the day this offense happened, he was passing by a, a scene where a murder had occurred about 45 minutes earlier and they had very little suspect information, simply that it was a skinny black man. They believed uh, up to 25 years of age and I think in excess of six foot. Brenton didn't meet those criteria, but he was skinny and he was black. And it was going to be a high-profile case. The uh, news organizations were already on the scene because it involved the death of a tourist in Florida. And as Dr. Leo mentioned, uh, these sort of problems arise with some frequency in high-profile cases. There's a great deal of pressure on the authorities to bring them to a swift conclusion. Uh, Brenton was picked up and displayed to the husband of the slain woman, uh, initially from a distance of 45 feet while he was in the back of a cage car. And the gentleman uh, well, excuse said that me, he Pat, wasn't... You're talking about a cage car. That's a police car with the, the grill. Correct. Okay. So he didn't have really much of an opportunity to see the young man, but he identified him. And from that point forward, the police had made a decision to focus on him 
as a suspect, which brought them into a mode as described by Dr. Leo, where they're in the interrogation with the sole purpose of obtaining a confession from him. And as Dr. Leo noted, there's essentially three types of false confessions. The voluntary ones, like the hundreds of people who uh, confessed to the Lindbergh kidnapping, perhaps for notoriety or whatever, or, or other ones like Otis Toole, who confessed to quite a few murders that he didn't do just because he got perks from the police for doing so. The second type that Dr. Leo mentioned, the course compliant, is one where they bring the, their techniques to bear in securing a confession from an individual, which includes um, actual either psychological or sometimes physical coercion. And they use a variety of techniques. They isolate the suspect, which they did with Brenton, from uh, 10 in the morning on till 10 at night. He was isolated totally from his family, not permitted to contact them, even though he was a minor. He was 15 years of age at the time. Each time Brenton would profess his innocence, there was an absolute rejection of that claim by the police, which is a, a critical part of the interrogation techniques employed by most police across the country. They tend to use either what's called the read technique or some variation on it, but they rely heavily on isolation, the rejection of innocence, and deception, the suggestion that uh, valid, legitimate evidence exists demonstrating conclusively the suspect's guilt, and very often the suspect does not realize uh, that they're lying to them. And In Brenton's case, Pat, didn't they take him out to the woods? They did. In Brenton's case, was somewhat unusual in my experience because they also actually used physical coercion. Uh, he was punched a couple of times during the course of his interrogation process. Uh, every time he tried to assert his innocence, it was rejected. Uh, they threatened him, and ultimately, because of stress and exhaustion and just a desire, which is not uncommon, to get out of that interrogation room, he wound up giving both an oral and written confession. They were both false, and uh, a careful examination of them made that at least pretty clear to me. And I think a private investigator or a defense attorney, in trying to determine what they're actually dealing with, needs to first look at the things which would identify a statement such as that as a false confession. In, in Brent, Brenton's case, did the police officers, because there was a trial, and Brenton was acquitted, actually. Correct. Did the police officers admit to punching him? No, they didn't. Uh, but we had photographed him very early on in the process, which showed some lumps and welts. And we had, a, uh, we had spent a great deal of time meticulously debriefing Brenton about the entire process, and we were able to... Uh, establish most of the points he told us about what the detectives had done and said. So there was physical evidence that showed he, he uh, that did show by photographic evidence. We had he was photographs. Now the state tried to maintain uh, they must have happened in a fight in the juvenile detention center, but I don't think the jury ultimately bought that. But I it think. wasn't simply the photographs because it was the total absence 
of any corroborating physical evidence. Things don't happen in a vacuum. People leave traces of themselves in terms of physical evidence. There was no corroborating evidence. None of the information he gave was factually accurate. Uh, the police suggested scenarios to him based on their limited knowledge of the case at that time, and he incorporated parts of their suggestions into the statement he ultimately gave. Fortunately, uh, it was just factually inconsistent with those things that were later established. When did you first realize that you had a false confession? That morning, I spent a great deal of time with him, and I in trying to determine whether a client is giving me a truthful account or, or a false one, I subject them to sort of a cross-examination. And most people don't hold up well on cross-examination if you're careful about it and you go back. You don't move chronologically. You move back and forth and see how their story holds up. And then what facts do they assert that you can establish Everything he told me ultimately was borne out, and I went out that same day. I looked through his room, spoke to his family. Everything that Brenton told me about the process and his situation checked out physically, and that gave me, it didn't convince me absolutely of his innocence, but it certainly gave me motivation to check further into his claims and as the case wore on and the investigation did, uh, I became increasingly convinced of the truth of his claim and had to, at that point, direct my efforts to trying to find things which would help a jury to understand how anybody would confess to something they didn't do. And that's what Dr. Leo was talking about before, because the prosecution views a confession as, you know, the crown jewel in their case, generally. And you have to detract from that value to the prosecution by establishing uh, the inconsistencies with the physical evidence, the circumstances under which the statement was taken, the very fact that they refused to record it so that a jury might know what actually went on in that room. All of those are critical matters that because the jury is going to start out as soon as they learn there is a confession with a presumption of guilt, and you have to disabuse them of that notion, which takes really a meticulous investigation of all the circumstances under which the confession was obtained and a full appreciation of the physical evidence, how it, it plays into or is contradicted by the uh, confession that they ultimately obtained. Uh, okay, okay, Pat. Um, you're listening to Pat McGinnis, the representative attorney of Brenton Butler, Florida, who was uh, tried for a crime he didn't commit. More about confessions in a moment. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com 
Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Are you ready to go green? You've asked, and we've heard you. Voice America presents the Green Talk Network. Environmental topics are at the forefront of our society, and the Green Talk Network is here to keep you up to date on the latest trends and new innovations for the eco-conscious lifestyle. We'll help promote a variety of ideas on the environment, from global warming issues to how you can become more eco-friendly in your daily activities. Be a part of the solution, not the problem. Visit the Green Talk Network page on voiceamerica.com and tune in to help spread the green. Step into the doorway to conscious choice, greater health, and well-being. Attain the balance that you've been seeking. Tune in and turn on 1111 Talk Radio. Feed the mind. Embrace positively. Release the tension. Step out of fear. Host Simran Singh will help you broaden your mind and open your heart toward a greater understanding of how to take charge of your life. 1111 Talk Radio is here every Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time on 7th Wave Network. 1111 Talk Radio. Because shift happens. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. Today's topic, false confessions, with me is Attorney Patrick McGinnis from Jacksonville, Jacksonville, Florida, who represented Brenton Butler. Um, Pat, would you take it from there? We were talking about Mr. Butler. Uh, We had, as I said, spent a lot of time investigating the circumstances of the questioning and trying to establish the conflicts with the physical evidence. We presented all that to the jury, which was a very conscientious group, they, uh, the trial was about two weeks, and they came back in about 45 minutes, not guilty. 45 so minutes? stuck with the stigma, having been charged with the murder. Shortly after that, about three months, we came into possession of information as to the identity of the real killer, and we shared that with the police. They followed up 
an established, uh, for instance, there was a fingerprint of the deceased woman or in her purse that had been recovered of the gentleman we named as the shooter. As they investigated further, they developed other physical evidence and statements of companions of that fellow. He ultimately went to trial and was convicted and is serving life now. The state, based on what happened in that case, a grand jury investigated. It was very critical of the state attorney and the prosecutor and suggested changes such as the recording of interrogations, which has now happened in Jacksonville in all major cases, and I think it aids everybody because the jury gets a realistic look at what happened and trying That's to determine great. how to evaluate it. He also uh, won a settlement with the city for a little better than three-quarters of a million dollars for his false arrest in that case. So there are a real price to false confessions, both in terms of money, how it affects people's lives, and how it undermines the system. I can imagine it would be hard to recover from that experience if uh, any one of us were Brenton Butler. Brian, Brian McGinnis, private investigator from Miami, Florida. What has been your experience with false confessions? Well, you know, since I got asked to be on the program, Francie, I was, you know, I was considering all the years that I've been uh, doing criminal defense, which, uh, you know, Pat's my older brother, 15 minutes older than me, so he's got a little <laughs> bit more experience. But we, uh, we, between the two of us, we have something like 60 years' experience. So each of us has 30 plus years. And I was thinking about it, and I said, it really, I've only worked on one or two that I can recall. And in talking to you recently, I realized I was surprised to hear that you had only worked on one or two, and I was Correct. giving it some thought as as to why. You know, we're we're both very experienced. We've had a, a, a wide variety of criminal defense cases, state charges, and federal cases. And the more I thought about it, the more I I realized that most likely I have worked on cases involving a false confession, but I may just not have realized it, or the attorney, defense attorney that I was working for may not have realized it. Um, I haven't had an opportunity to read Dr. Leo's uh, book yet, but I did um, did take a look at a Champion article, uh, Dr. Leo, that you wrote back in uh, December 2007, and I got a sense of uh, kind of a summary of some of the research. And uh, it was very, very interesting. I think uh, a lot of defense-oriented people should, uh, should take a look at that, particularly about police-induced uh, Confessions, but uh, going back to uh, the lack of experience, I think uh, you know we were talking about how can how can we remedy the situation. I think at the basic level, when a defense investigator and, and a criminal defense attorney get a case where they're presented with a confession, um, you know, Dr. Leo makes the point that often even criminal defense people, when they're presented with that confession, uh, may drop down their level of representation a notch and maybe in the back of their mind, think, hey, he's confessed, let's go into damage control and uh, let's plead this case out. So uh, especially with a case like Brenton Butler's, I had a limited role on that, and I can get into that in a moment. But I think as a, as a kind of a precaution uh, in the future that investigators get involved in these cases should really scrutinize, uh, Pat was starting to talk about that, kind of scrutinize all the information, all the factual information, police reports, physical evidence, trace evidence, all of that, and really take a look and see if there's contradictions in the, uh, in the defendant's story and the defendant's confession to the police. And I think if you really do scrutinize that, you're going to find oftentimes obvious contradictions. I think the general public maybe believes often that 
people who are in the uh, work of criminal defense representation um, are, I don't know what the word would would be, but I would say that they're actually pretty skeptical when you're re- representing uh, a client that's convicted something as serious as a murder. You may go in also believing that they're guilty. Sure, and, and, you know, we've all seen it in criminal defense cases. I mean, I, I recall when I was a public defender investigator, I did that for seven years in Miami. I remember uh, someone who, di- who was actually guilty who had confessed to the police, and when I interviewed him, uh, I, I asked him why. Why did, why did you speak to the police? Uh, you know, you knew you had an attorney or you're going to about to have an attorney, and he, uh, he said, well, you know, he needed a smoke. Uh, so the police gave him a pack of cigarettes. So I said, well, okay, you've just flushed 20-plus years of your life down the, down the drain for a pack of cigarettes. And, and the listeners are probably saying, what? How can anybody do that? How could anybody be that stupid? But it happens. So the, the point being, people do really irrational things, people that you meet in the criminal justice system. Uh, so it's not that far a stretch to think that uh, a regular person, that ha- innocent person that just happens to have the... Uh, the bad timing, like Brenton Butler did, to be within a couple of miles of the crime scene and get picked up, that that person could ultimately, you know, confess to a crime they didn't commit. You know, Pat mentioned the read technique, and I believe you've taken some read technique training. Could you tell us a little bit of what that is? Well, I took the read technique uh, for interrogation. Uh, not so much. Uh, I believe it was. I'd have to go back and look at the materials, but I believe it was for interviewing and interrogation. And obviously, as a criminal defense investigator, I'm not so much interested in interrogate in interrogation, but I'm interested in the techniques. And some of those techniques were alluded to today about lying, about false promises, about promises of leniency, uh, getting in, trying to establish trust, getting close to the person, uh, trying to be very empathetic. Uh, there's a lot of techniques, and it's very psychological, and uh, people, I think, have a difficult time in, you know, believing that somebody could get duped by that. But also, a lot of it has to do with it being often a high-profile case, and there's hours and hours of interrogation. And the person might just get so sick of it and, uh, or may start to believe that maybe they were really drunk or uh, you know, doing drugs or something, that they might have possibly done something that they, they, they have no sense that they could really be capable of. So... Uh, in fact, when I took the course, uh, there was a well-known capital case litigator from the public defenders there, and we bumped into each other, and we hadn't seen each other in years, and it was kind of comical because I think we were about the only two defense people in the room, so we we kind of kept a tight lid on it. <laughs> mm-hmm. so that we, uh, when we were having lunch, we went to stand out as defense-oriented people because most of the people there were law enforcement. Are you saying that there's a conflicts between law enforcement and people who do criminal defense? <laughs> no, I'm not saying that at all. Oh, okay. I'm just, just checking. I'm just implying it. Um, okay. And uh, Dr. Leo, could you address the Reed technique? Well, the, the Reed technique um, is named after John Reed, who founded the firm Reed & Associates in 1947. So they go back a long way. And they, he was the second author of the famous Inbow and Reed interrogation manual that was first written in 1942. And um, they, um, they've been the leading interrogation trainers in law enforcement um, for now over half a century. And in the 1970s, they started going around and doing training, um, not just the publishing their manuals. 
They, they also have done a lot of polygraph training over the years, for which uh, John Reed was also, with which he was also associated with early polygraph training in the 40s. Um, so they, they have uh, a manual that is the leading interrogation training manual. The most recent edition was published in 2001. It's called Police Interrog- or Criminal Interrogations and Confessions. And they have a website. I'm sorry, Criminal Interrogation what? I'm sorry, what's that? Criminal Interrogation what is it oh, called? Criminal Interrogations and Confessions. Okay. And they have a website, and they go around the country, and they train in, in, in three-day introductory and two-day advanced courses. Now, um, their, their, their methods of interrogation are the primary psychological methods that you see in many interrogations in practice. Um, I, you know, I, I think Pat was talking about scenarios, and law enforcement are trained to give suspects scenarios, um, what they call themes in, in for example, um, in a murder case to try to convince somebody they did it accidentally or it was self-defense as opposed to intentionally. And they have these themes or scenarios that they use for all different cases to make somebody think what they're admitting to is really not that serious or perhaps that the consequences will be less. And the, the kinds of techniques that Brian was referring to, accusing, lying about evidence, putting pressure on. They have a whole, a whole range of techniques, and the techniques are largely effective. They, they often get guilty people to confess, but sometimes they can get innocent people to confess. Now, to their credit, the Reed, Reed and Associates, in their most recent manual, the 2001 manual, have an entire chapter on false confessions. It's not a very good chapter because they're very defensive and, and they attack many of the researchers like myself, but it's, it's a start because, um, because they're training police now to recognize that there is this problem and it does have psychological causes and there are things that, even though they downplay the role of their techniques, which is the primary psychological cause of false confessions, but, um, but, the, but they are getting this onto... Uh, interrogators and detectives' radars um, and telling them some of the, not all, but some of the do's and don'ts. And hopefully the next edition, given that the current one's 10 years old, hopefully that edition will, will be more up-to-date uh, and, and, and be better in terms of training police officers and interrogators on some of the things to avoid. Um, but it's a mixed bag because I was mentioning earlier that, that uh, police train uh, police are trained to think they can be human lie detectors based on false cues of body language and demeanor, which have nothing to do with, with psychological science or research and everything to do with misleading cop folklore. And um, the Reed method and the Reed manuals repeat those um, false statements throughout their manuals about cues to deception that simply aren't borne out by the research, which gets back to what gets sometimes innocent people in the interrogation room. So there's a longer discussion to be had, but the Reed method is the main method of police interrogation training, for better and for worse. Um, but the, the the idea for for listeners who think that false confessions, you know, uh, don't happen, even law enforcement acknowledges that they happen, and even the police interrogation training mani- manuals talk to police or try to try to instruct police on on the fact that it happens and some of the causes and some of the things to do to avoid eliciting them. That's the voice of Dr. Richard Leo. Back shortly. News. Opinion. 
your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Go behind the scenes of what you see, hear, and read on the news. Learn the ins and outs of public relations on Stars of PR with Cindy R. Every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time. Cindy Rakowitz is a Clio Award winner and founder of Rock and Roll Public Relations who wants to share her PR experiences and knowledge with you. Learn how to handle a crisis, deal with celebrities, and become a terrific PR executive. Listen to the Stars of PR with Cindy R. every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time here on News Talk Radio, voiceamerica.com. What would you do if you knew that you could not fail? The Dr. Pat Show with Dr. Pat Basili is a radio forum for some of the world's most influential people in the fields of health, wellness, and human potential. Dr. Pat brings together and introduces visionary scientists and futurists, environmentalists, educators, business leaders, inventors, filmmakers, authors, artists, mystics, and healers who inspire and support individual and collective growth and positive cultural shifts. This award-winning radio show empowers the listening community to be the change they want to see in the world. Tune in every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific for the Dr. Pat show with Dr. Pat Basili, radio to thrive by. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. Discussing false confessions and why people confess to crimes they didn't commit, along with a few notable cases involving people who did. We left off with my guest, Dr. Richard Leo. Dr. Leo, do you have any last thoughts for us? Yeah, very quickly. We haven't talked about the DNA exonerations. and um, Barry Sheck and Peter Neufeld started the Innocence Project in the late 1980s, and since then, over 250 people have been exonerated by DNA. These are people who were convicted by juries, 
and spent many years in prison, and they're the lucky ones because there was biological evidence available, which is often not available in almost all the cases. People don't have biological evidence to test. I believe it's 10% of the cases. And the testing proved their innocence, and they were released after many years in prison, some, in, some from death row. And consistently, 20 to 25% of those cases involve false confessions. So this is a regular phenomenon. It, it, it often leads to wrongful convictions. And sometimes it happens in cases of multiple defendants. Um, one of those DNA exonerations was the famous 1989 Central Park jogger case in New York where five innocent juveniles all falsely confessed and were wrongly convicted. It was the trial of the century at the time. So for, for readers who think this, or for listeners who think this is exotic or it doesn't happen, it happens, and it leads to wrongful convictions. It's, very, it, it's, it's a very common phenomenon um, among the wrongful conviction cases. I can tell you're passionate about your work here, Dr. Leo. Thank you. Pat McGinnis, do you have any last thoughts for us? Just that if you're involved in something like this, you need to really try and determine what you're dealing with. Uh, there are certain individuals who are more vulnerable to these techniques, uh, particularly younger teenagers, people with uh, mental deficits or have a history of acquiescence to authority. Uh, for very, many, very often I've found military personnel, uh, if they're told by people in authority that there's evidence they did something, they'll tend to believe it even if it's not true. Sure. Uh, women, uh, the research indicates, are more likely to confess falsely. And the really? techniques are quite powerful. We talked about a number of types of false confessions, but um, the ones where the person himself comes to believe it because they're, the cops talk about they blacked out or they're repressing the information or imagine what would happen during these accident theories. These people actually come to believe that they did things they didn't. And there are ways to determine how vulnerable your client is to this sort of thing and ways to counter it by a good investigation. Do you know uh, where Brenton is now and what he's doing? He's here in Jacksonville. He's married. I believe he has one child. He's uh, helping people with mortgage foreclosures, trying to get them through that process, and I think he's dabbling in currency trading. Wow. And... Have, do you know if he's had lasting effects from this case? Uh, well, it certainly made him a good deal more skittish about the police. <laughs> I'll bet. I'll bet. But you did say he received a settlement from the county? Uh, the family received a settlement for a little over three-quarters of a million dollars. Um, and he's used some of that for his family. He's, used some, he's gotten, I guess, a couple of years of college. And... Uh, he seems to be doing pretty well these days, as a, does his family. A positive outcome from a very ugly situation. Certainly. And Brian, what last thoughts do you have? I guess my, my last thoughts would be uh, tips to criminal defense investigators working on any kind of confession, confession case to uh, really scrutinize the physical evidence and, and look for contradictions in your client's own confession try to get a sense whether it possibly could have been coerced or uh, maybe this compliant uh, situation Dr. Leo uh, mentioned. So to scrutinize the evidence and also if you have a client that's, uh, you know, really very withdrawn or a real hard case uh, and uh, isn't forthcoming with information to interview family, close family members and close friends and try, try to get inside the person's head, the defendant's head a bit, try to get a sense whether or not this person 
uh, could could be involved in a false confession. Yeah, and you know, uh, I, I want to bring up, because um, I don't think it came out during this discussion, is Pat McGinnis was a public defender at the time he represented Brenton Butler. And I think often public defenders um, are looked at as just going through the process and not really um, often the public or somebody that's charged with a crime doesn't feel as if a public defender will really represent their interests. And Pat McGinnis, example of this case is exactly the opposite of that. He certainly uh, was an advocate for Brenton Butler, and as a result, he was acquitted, and Pat followed through on that case and did everything he could to find out what was really going on. And I applaud you, Pat. Thank you. But Let I me interject you know, uh, myself. Brian, uh, Pat, Pat went as far as calling me to see if there was a way to scientifically uh, determine whether or not tears were on a confession. So that will give you an idea of how far he goes on cases. Yeah, and, you know, I, I often hear this myself, that, it, you know, somebody wants to hire a private attorney because the public defender isn't good enough. And I just, uh, that, that's not true. There's good attorneys in the private sector, and there's bad attorneys in the private sector, and that applies to the public defender's office as well in any state you're in. I think that's true, but they have, as a public defender, you have the advantage of practicing what I call pure law because you don't have to worry about paying for the copier bills and the toner and so on. The difference is the number of cases you have to do. All right. Um, well, and, of course, I'm, I haven't mentioned either there's people that, uh, private attorneys that handle cases that uh, the public defender's office can't handle because of some kind of a conflict. Either they're representing one of the co-defendants or they've, they're representing a witness or something like that. Frank, they always remember being asked by defendants over the Day County Jail, they'd say, I want a real lawyer, and I would say, you do have a real lawyer. You have somebody who's in the trenches every day, and, and people don't realize that public defenders are in court every day uh, fighting. You know, Pat, Pat and Ann Finnell did a phenomenal job in this case, and, you know, there's movies out there like we, we all remember My Cousin Vinny with the uh, stuttering public defender. and. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, uh, they were a far cry from that. They really did an excellent job and put a lot of time into this young man's defense. Well, and you mentioned Pat, um, Pat's partner, Ann Finnell, who also worked on the case. I don't believe we mentioned her before, so thank you for bringing up her name, Brian. I'd like to thank my three guests for giving us an inside look at this phenomenon of false confession. Dr. Richard Leo, author of Police Interrogation and American Justice, Florida Attorney Patrick McGinnis, and Private Investigator Brian McGinnis. If you would like to know more about Brenton Butler's case, you can purchase the Oscar-winning documentary, Murder on a Sunday Morning, on Amazon.com. If you're interested in reading the book, Police Interrogation and American Justice, authored by Dr. Leo, you can find it on Amazon.com as well. I highly recommend them both. They're both great. Next week's show, Inside the Investigation of John Walker Lynn, the American Taliban, with California private investigators David Fetchheimer and Barry Simon. If you have a specific question you would like to have answered about John Walker Lynn, send it to me at Francie at PISDeclassified.com. Tune in next week as we declassify another episode from the fascinating files of private investigators. It's PIs Declassified. I'm Francie Kaler. Thanks for listening.
You've been listening to P.I.'s Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific Time, here on the Voice America Variety Channel. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.